Welcome to the Her Empowered Divorce Podcast. I'm your host, Beverly Price, and I am the empowering divorce coach who guides you on your journey before, during, and after divorce. So you can eliminate pain, overwhelm, sadness, and anger, and create more knowledge, skill, and peace than I experienced myself. With my 30 years of divorce and empowerment coaching experience, I understand exactly what you're going through. Divorce is a difficult and emotional journey, but it can also be a time of growth and transformation. Through this podcast, you'll gain valuable insights on all aspects of divorce, from the logistical and financial to the emotional and legal. My goal is to empower you to confidently move forward in your divorce, manage your emotions, think clearly, avoid common mistakes, and ultimately create a happy and fulfilling life. With expert guests, practical advice, actionable tips, and inspiring conversations, we'll explore how to master your divorce and emerge stronger on the other side. You don't have to face this journey alone. Let's start together and create a better future for you. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, beautiful. I'm so glad you're here today. Today is something special. As a survivor, my passionate passion is domestic violence, and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It's critical that we all become aware and encourage others to. In fact, I formed a divorce coalition of divorce professionals to help me increase awareness and carry the message of domestic violence awareness and recovery. So today I have two exciting guests, Joni and Larry Jones, and it's so exciting because we're going to do a two-part series. They are both experts in domestic violence from different points of view. The first part we're going to talk about is emotional readiness for domestic violence victims for court. The second part is the legal readiness for domestic violence victims for court. And they may intersperse in each part but together they're going to form the total picture of readiness for victims in court. And I hope you, I hope you, I hope this helps you understand that what the victim goes through and what is involved on their side so that you can have empathy to their process. Hi, Larry. Hi, Joni. How are you doing today? Hi, Beverly. I'm doing just great. We're doing great. And thank you for having us here this morning. Look forward to speaking with you and your audience. Where are you coming to us from? We're from New Mexico at the present time. Uh, We previously lived many years in the state of New Jersey. And after the the last of our six children moved out, we relocated to the Southwest. You know, so we're by the same. Yes, yes. They're all adults now and they're all doing well. And we live by what's called the Sandia Mountain Peak in uh, in New Mexico. Beautiful. Can you each tell me a little bit about yourself and what is your interest and passion about domestic violence? Larry, well, you want to my start? name is Joni. Joni my name is Joni Jones, 
And um, I'm a registered nurse of over 45 years. And um, I worked on a mental health unit for almost 10 years. And I happened to be a survivor of domestic violence. And I didn't get myself in the situation just one or two times. It's more like three. And Me I was too. also, <laughs> and I was also uh, a product of um, domestic violence in my childhood. So um, when I worked on the mental health unit, where uh, the criteria to be on the unit was uh, even those that uh, had suicidal thoughts, I ran a lot of groups. And uh, in those groups, I, I learned a lot about um, people being in similar situations. So they were either a product of domestic violence as a child, uh, as an adult, going through a contentious divorce or even the continued after the divorce. So uh, I just got a, a lot of passion, not only from my experience professionally, but personally. Wow, that's some experience. And, you know, you and I share being survivors of multiple instances of abuse. So I'm right there with you. Larry, how about you? Well, when I was in New Jersey, I was a judge in the family court, a domestic violence judge, presided over countless domestic violence cases and was also on the faculty of judicial college there where the judges go for trainings. And I taught domestic violence, uh, particularly things like differences between uh, domestic violence and domestic contratemps, domestic disagreements. Not all domestic violence is physical. So there are some, some distinctions between different types of domestic violence. After I retired from the bench in 2017, I became a professor at Monmouth University at that time in New Jersey and developed and taught a course specifically on domestic violence and public policy to undergraduate students, particularly students who are interested in the field and potentially going into the field. And uh, out here in New Mexico, since we moved out here, we've become involved with the uh, coalition, New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence and just recently did a training for them as well. So we've been involved with domestic violence professionally for a long, long time. And uh, that's why a podcast such as yours is really a great, um, a great forum to bring awareness, particularly in October, Domestic Violence Month, like you mentioned, but really 12 months out of the year. It's not just, just in October, but all the time, there needs to be a constant heightened awareness of the social implications of domestic violence. Oh, that's, it's so powerful. And some people have asked me why a divorce coach would be interested in domestic violence. And it's not only my personal survivor experience, but that 24% of all divorces cite domestic violence as a cause. So it's prevalent uh, among all women and one out of every three women is subject to some form of intimate partner violence and abuse. Yes. And a lot of that doesn't get reported. You know, a lot of the statistics, you know, when they take a look at how many cases, for example, where there, where there was a restraining order involved during the divorce process or maybe leading up to the divorce process. But then you have all the unreported instances of domestic violence that clearly do exist and would drive those numbers up even further. Mm. So, Joni, I think you're going to talk to us about the emotional readiness can you tell me a little bit about, first of all, what's going on in the mind of a victim of domestic violence? 
Well, everybody has individual responses, but when you're going through some, some of these uh, unique situations, there, there's just so many mixed emotions. You can um, just be confused. You can be in disbelief. You can have uh, a lot of anxiety and, you know, just being lost and not knowing what, what to do. And, um, and it, it becomes really stifling because um, so many people, it turns into a trauma and a lot of people don't even realize that it's trauma in the beginning. And there can be so many triggers that there's emotional responses to. And that's why um, I'd like to talk about the uh, emotional readiness to that. And, and, you know, sometimes it's important to know the fundamentals to learning because we're not born with knowledge. We're, we're born with the ability to learn, but if we have never been shown something, we're not going to know about it. And so many people, they just expect, you know, uh, that they're supposed to know something when they, when something is happening to them and they start blaming themselves and they'll, they'll start being critical of themselves. So it's turned internally. Wow. So, you know, domestic violence is a very emotional, stressful, stressful time. And, um, people don't, don't always understand the impact of the adrenal gland response. And many people know about that fight, flight, or freeze, but they don't know what happens when, when, um, that adrenal gland response is going off and there's physical responses. So this hormone surges can set off that uh, adrenal hormone and the heart rate goes up, the breathing goes up, the blood pressure goes up. Uh, people can start to see visually their, their pupils are enlarging. They can get dizzy, um, sweating, heart starts to palpitate, and they can actually go into a panic attack. So uh, this is when you get into those tremors, the chest pain, blurred vision, and anyone who has gone into a panic attack, many people feel like they're actually going to die. And um, also, people with pseudo seizures, now people have heard of seizures, and when you have the epileptic seizures, that's an increased electrical activity in the brain, and uh, there's a physical response to that, but pseudo seizures do not come from the brain. They come from an emotional state and it's caused by trauma, anxiety, and history of abuse. So these signs and symptoms mimic the seizure, but it's referred to as a, a, a conversion disorder and it's treated not with medications like an epileptic seizure, but managing the underlying anxiety. Now, when you talk about anxiety, that's more gradual but that panic situation is sudden. But the thing that um, I like to uh, share with the audience is the effects on the brain, because we have a right side and we have a left side of the brain. So in the right side of the brain, it's more of the emotional side. And it, it is very impulsive. It is very reactionary. And people respond to what they believe are happening. So it, it's like the what ifs, the what ifs, the what ifs. And those what ifs may never occur, but the response on the body 
does it's like a dream you know you might think that a dream really happened when it didn't so um but when you're in that side of the brain there's there's no effective logical decision making so if you don't have logical thinking it's very difficult to make a decision and that's why some people don't understand how come how come i'm going on and on and on and i can't i can't figure this thing out well this is where we have to get into the left side of the brain where logical thinking takes place. It is not impulsive. You are able to look at the facts and you are able to now make decisions that are effective. And many people think that when they have these emotional responses and whether they're taking medication or whether they're doing um, um, essential oils, meditation, things of that nature, that will help in the prerequisites of learning, such as being able to sit, attend, and focus, but it doesn't skill build. So skill building, like I said, if you've never been shown something, you're not going to know about it. So um, when, when you are, the, the main thing that I, I like to, to share with people is that being aware or being mindful that you're having this change or this surge in your body because once you are mindful to that you can push that pause button you can take that break and there's something that's called like a a, a 333 rule and you know that's when you're identifying three objects in your uh, environment and then you're also identifying three sounds um, in, in your environment and movements of body parts. And what that does is it takes it down a notch and gets you into that state where you can cross over into that side of the brain by bringing those emotional responses down. And there's another thing that I like to tell people is if you can have like a little catchphrase, because you can do this anywhere and nobody knows that it's happening. And I like the word loving. So if I'm going to take um, a calming word such as that and take a breath and just be like loving, that's going to help bring those emotional surges uh, down. And um, so that now you can take the time to change yourself talk because that fear response, um, when, when you're going into this anxiety or this, this panic, you know, when, when you talk about fear, what's fear? Well, fear is defined as insecurity. So what would be the management of insecurity would be, would be security. Well, what's security? Well, the thing about security is it's something that you need to have on you at all times. And what do you have on you at all times? You have your self-talk. But the great thing about it is fear is very unique to an individual. So like I could be scared of a bug and I could panic over it and people might not realize it because they'll say, hey, you're a million times you know, bigger than that bug. Why are you, uh, you know, afraid of it? Fear is very individualized. So when you define your security, it only has to make sense to you. And Beverly, I could share a link with you because I did a simple fear video that you can share with your, your audience. It's just a couple minutes long, but it's very powerful in helping people understand how they can get control of that fear. 
Hi everyone. As parents, we often have gut feelings when something just isn't right. And this can be especially true in co-parenting arrangements where one parent is struggling with addiction. If you're co-parenting with an ex who abuses alcohol, Soberlink can help. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they are not drinking during parenting time. The system's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test, so you can be confident your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, attorneys get court-admissible evidence of sobriety, and your kids are able to maintain healthy relationships with both parents. To sign up, Soberlink's offering $50 off your device for our listeners. Visit www.soberlink.com empowered, and that will be in the show notes as well. Wow, that's, that's powerful um, and such insight. There's so many stereotypes of victims. What's really the reality um, of, of the victim? And what well, are some it, of the misguided stereotypes? Well, people are just looking at the, uh, the emotional responses uh, to an individual and they're drawing their own conclusions. So uh, if somebody uh, is uh, introverted because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're sad or they're having all these mixed emotions or um, they don't know how to respond and then they're impulsively reacting, you know, out because uh, they, they don't have control, people can look at them like they're, you know, they're not stable. And, um, and they're not, uh, I mean, let's face it, uh, this can happen to anybody, but there's people that you can be as um, professional or educated or have your contributions. And then when people are looking at your, your responses to an emotional situation, all of a sudden they're adding to it by, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're not as stable. So I can't, I can't take what you, you say as, uh, as, as powerful to your contributions to the world. And then that just adds even more. And that's when we get into a lot of uh, isolation, confusion, and um, when uh, people, and this is an important thing, you know, some people might start to feel guilty when they, when they blame themselves. And, um, you know, they, they feel like they did something wrong because that's what uh, guilt is. But guilt can turn into shame. And the difference with shame is when somebody feels they are something wrong. So when somebody starts to believe that they are something wrong and um, they feel like they don't fit in, this is where I saw a lot on my unit. Uh, other people, they might start out if they have some other underlying things, cutting themselves to get some relief. So there's some self-injurious behaviors to themselves, but that can convert over into suicidal ideation. And um, depending even what age you are, you may be prone to bullying. And bullying is another thing. I mean, we see this all the time that it's very sad 
because people aren't really getting to the, they're only looking at the outside and not getting to the inside. And then they have their own stereotypes and then they're making the situation worse. And we've seen, you know, so many people who have completed the, the task of suicide, they've taken their own life, but one life lost is one life too many. And in addition to, to what Joni is indicating, you know, historically, one of the worst myths, you know, that was very detrimental to survivors of domestic violence is when they came, for example, to court and they'd been in a long-term abusive relationship and then the other side or, or even the court sometimes says, well, why didn't you just leave? If you, if you were really being victimized by domestic violence, you would have left. And it, it's really... You know, people who take that, who ask that question, you kind of understand sometimes why that question is asked, but it also demonstrates, you know, a real misunderstanding of domestic violence. People are not always in a position to just leave. There could be children involved. There could be financial dependency. There could be, like Joni says, emotional uh, shame, even though the survivor did nothing wrong. They, they're embarrassed. They don't want a word to get out. They don't want to go down. They're afraid to talk to the police. And so there could be very legitimate reasons why somebody stays in an abusive relationship, even when they know it's not healthy for them. And then sometimes the fact that they stayed and, you know, hoped things would get better, sometimes the other side tries to use that against them in court with the myth that, well, if I was such a bad person, they would have just walked out the door. It's really not that simple, especially if you have all of these interdependencies, financial, emotional, uh, domestic, ch uh, parental or otherwise. And Beverly, just to add to that, um, there's something that's called a trauma bond. And that's when the abused person develops an unhealthy attachment to their abuser. And, uh, you know, with that said, some people really feel that having a relationship is better than no relationship at all. And what I had seen a lot on the unit is that people miss understand the compatibility to their sexual responses to love so the sexual responses the intimacy it feels really good and then that becomes their definition of love so you you know i worked with a lot of people with that to differentiate the two but the other thing that i talk about is i refer to it as a yo-yo effect and, you know, in a relationship, you have your good times and you have your bad times. Right. And we have coping mechanisms and coping mechanisms. One of the two main ones is uh, minimizing and denying. So um, and, and, and then, you know, when you have that, it's very hard. Uh, people start to rationalize. So um, uh, like Larry was was saying that. Um, there's a, a security effect that it's it's better than having nothing but you know a lot of people hold on to those good times and that's what they're focusing on and they're thinking that they're going to get those good times back and like i'd mentioned uh, previously briefly a lot of people start blaming themselves especially when you have the abuser telling them nobody's going to want you this is right. your fault you did this so um you know that embarrassment or that shame and that lack of uh, confidence affects their ability to develop a plan, stick to that plan and carry out that plan. Absolutely. And I would think that all of the swirling emotions like you talked about also leads to their brain kind of been clogged so that they can't think clearly. 
that can certainly happen. That happens a lot with the, you know, what many people call the gaslighting effect that's very prominent in domestic violence. We could talk about that a little later if, if you'd like. But the, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when somebody, you know, very often in a domestic situation, uh, the survivor, you know, has a strong bond with the person who they, you know, who is abusing them because when they first got together with them, they had strong feelings for them. That's why they got together in the first place. And they want so badly to believe that the picture of the person when it, when they first started the relationship is still the same person. And so when Joni talks about, you know, the, the, the yo-yo effect, very often in the domestic violence field, they talk about the cycle of domestic violence, right? Right. And, and that, you know, you could have a, 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 an abusive situation and then the abuser says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll behave, I'll be good. They come home with a dozen roses. And you're telling the survivor what the survivor uh, sometimes wants or needs to hear so that they don't have to face the reality that this is, situation may not get better and, in fact, may progressively get worse. So you have situations where many people, when they file for a restraining order, it's after you know, seven or eight prior instances when they could have filed earlier, but they chose not to for all of the various reasons or perhaps other reasons um, that are that are swirling around in their head. It's a very traumatic situation when you think about it, particularly in a, in a marital situation, when the very person who you depended on uh, to have a joint partnership to go through for better or worse, right? As they said, you know, it, at, when they take their vows, um, now that person is the one abusing you. So you're kind of on your own against that person in a way. And that could be very hard to come to grips with um, you know what it's like, and obviously domestic violence is much worse than the situation I'm going to describe, but by analogy, sometimes people are in a really bad job. They feel abused at work, harassed at work by their coworkers. They feel demeaned by their supervisor or their manager. Um, they feel unappreciated. They feel basically targeted, and sometimes they, they are, but they sometimes still stay in that job, even though they know that that job is no good for them and there's probably a lot better situations for them out there if they pursue them. But yet they stay at that job, some people do, much longer than they should. And then when they finally get the courage to go out there and see a better life, then why didn't I do this 10 years ago? You know, why didn't I do this 15 years ago? Then they're kicking themselves for not having done something about it earlier. So with domestic violence, obviously it's much worse in those types of situations, but you can see the same type of, the same type of, um, a, a struggle, internal struggle for people going on in that type of situation, just kind of hoping things are going to get better. And more often than not, they don't. These situations don't fix themselves, quite frankly. And that's why they call it a cycle of domestic violence, because after after the apologies and the, you know, and the, the forgiveness and everything, then it sometimes escalates to even worse situations, because now there's a precedential history of the survivor accepting the abuse even though they, they know they shouldn't, and the, and the abuser knowing they got away with it the first time so they could do it again, only at a, at a heightened, uh, in a heightened situation. And Beverly, I'd like to add to that because if you are a product of domestic violence as a child, you could adapt that as being a norm. And um, because that's what you've grown up with, that's what you've been shown. So, so it's, it's not like somebody who has never experienced something like that before. Then we see people that um, if they're married and they have taken vows, they feel like if they break their vows, they have done something against um, religiously, um, you know, by breaking those vows. So they try to do everything. 
The other thing that um, I'd like to just get into is that a lot of people feel like they're doing it. They're staying in a relationship for their children yeah. because they have this, you know, this um, image sort of like the Brady Bunch that they want to get. And they think that, you know, um, it's it, it, they're providing more of a stability for the children, especially if they feel that they're not being uh, the the victim you know, the, the victim, they're not being victimized by, you know, that situation, but they are. And that's what I'd like to get into, you know, when there's children involved, because um, they see and they feel and they know more than, um, than what uh, people think that they do. And this may result in decreased self-esteem, depending on their age, everybody has something different. Uh, if they're in school, we could see grades, uh, go down, uh, they don't participate in sports, uh, they start, you know, letting go of those extracurricular activities. But there's also something that's called somatic responses. And with somatic responses, again, it's from an underlying anxiety because when they're seeing this, their security is being impacted. And, um, you know, they can get stomach aches, they can get headaches, they can get all these things. And you're running them to doctors thinking that there's something physically wrong with them but it's actually an emotional response. So somatic responses are real. They present themselves with real symptoms, like I, like I just mentioned, but it's due to uh, underlying um, uh, anxiety. But when we get into older children, we might start to see uh, introduction of drugs, alcohol, you know, looking right. for an escape. There's a uh, decreased coping. We can see depression and if people, you know, don't think that um, 10 year olds have completed the task of suicide, they have. And it's, it's, it's very, very sad. Because again, you know, um, you, you have these the people who are, are, are lost, they have no way out, they're getting bullied in because oh, look at that person, even if they start crying. Um, and then when when they grow into a, adults, you know, they could actually become perpetrators themselves because this is behavior that they have learned, you know, and um, so and, and but you can have the opposite effect. You can have somebody who um, uh, is very compassionate and would do the exact opposite uh, of, of that response. But you don't know, um, you know, uh, how somebody is going to respond. But I always say, look at any change in behavior, because some might start responding very aggressively and others, you know, withdraw. So and some and this is what becomes important is some might engage in risky behaviors. So when they start to see this this change in their environment and their security, you know, they might seek acceptance through unhealthy relationships. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of gangs form and, you know, and and. And acceptance in some individuals is better than no acceptance, um, just like we see when somebody doesn't want to leave a relationship because they'd rather have a relationship than not, no relationship. And that's when we talk to seeing somebody maybe going into the even smoking, you know, and all those uh, those other things. So uh, it's important to, to when you think that you're staying for the child 
what the impact of staying with that child can do in the long run and affect their livelihoods. Many people feel divorce is a death sentence, but with the right support and guidance, you can move through the process with knowledge, skills, and confidence. It can also be a time of growth and progress. As a divorce and empowerment coach, I'm an invaluable member of your divorce team. I help you understand and navigate the process, come to terms with your emotions, avoid costly mistakes, learn skills to help you communicate and negotiate, find your true voice, and create an empowered life post-divorce. If you're interested in learning more, schedule a free consultation at HerEmpoweredDivorce.com. You know, in New Jersey, in the domestic violence statute in New Jersey, they call it the Prevention of Domestic Violence Act. That's the statute that governs the laws of domestic violence in the courts. And at the start of the statute, anyone can Google it and look it up. There's a legislative statement at the very beginning, and it says right there, as a finding by the legislature that the risk to children, even if they are not the target of domestic violence, just growing up seeing domestic violence, they are at a heightened risk of, as adults, becoming either victims themselves of domestic violence or abusers themselves for the reasons that Joni was referencing. So sometimes the children become very, very much collateral damage in the process just by being exposed to yes. parental domestic violence. And there's a long-term importance of being a positive role model for your children. So when you get out of a dangerous situation, um, the person, the child feels safe. And when they feel safe, there's clearer thoughts. That anxiety goes down. That fear goes down. And then you're maintaining their self-esteem. They're feeling more positive, energized, motivated. So positive role modeling increases your chances of having those positive outcomes. Now, we, we're talking a lot about domestic violence. There's so many other forms of abuse other than just being hit. How, how do those forms of abuse figure into emotional readiness? Well, first of all, the, the right, domestic violence is not only physical, the most obvious forms perhaps and most traditional when people think of domestic violence for example an assault if somebody hits another person and they have a domestic or dating relationship um but i can tell you that statistically for example when i sat on the bench in new jersey the 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 top form of domestic violence was not assault it was not physical it was harassment and harassment you know it was without a question, it was harassment, certainly in my experience. And, you know, sometimes, you know, harassment really depends on the factual circumstances. You can be abusive towards someone without ever laying a hand on them. There are multiple ways, you know, stalking, uh, terroristic threats, verbally threatening to do something to someone without actually touching them, um, cyber harassment, calling people names, trying to get them in trouble at work. You know, if someone, let's say you had a dating relationship and Let's say, you know, the, the, uh, the woman tells the guy, I, I don't, uh, it's not working. I don't want to see you anymore. And he doesn't accept that. So he starts making harassing calls at work, driving past the workplace, saying negative things about her to the boss, let's say, you know, sending, you know, trying to get her in trouble at work, posting, you know, uh, really embarrassing things online. So those aren't physical, but they're just as hurtful. And they could certainly 
cause in many instances far more trauma than a physical assault, even though a physical assault, of course, she should never be condoned. Um, so you would see that very often, but then, and also you would see sometimes a mix. You'd see a combination of both physical and emotional abuse when there's a pattern of domestic violence. But when you talk about emotional readiness, and, and, and Joni you know, can speak about this further, but you know, when, as she mentioned before, sometimes people question themselves, like, should I, should I come forward? Am I going to be believed? Is it me? You know, and if it what if it's physical, it's more obvious. You know, if somebody punches you in the in the face or in the eye, you know, you were assaulted. You don't. There's no debate right. about that. But the other types of forms are less are more difficult to prove sometimes, unless it's in writing, like in a text or, you know, email or you know, online social media harassment that type of thing. But it's if it's just one person's word against another, while you can win those cases. Um, it sometimes takes a, a, you know, more to prove it basically than it might be in another circumstance. And you might have to concentrate more on what the history has been and not just one isolated instance of somebody, you know, called you, a, a, you know, an offensive name or something like that. Um, and the emotional readiness comes in when you have, it's first and foremost, is recognizing that this is abuse. And even if it's not physical, if it's emotional abuse, it can rise to the level of domestic violence and fit within what the whole purpose of the of the restraining order and domestic violence act is is to protect the person from a health standpoint from domestic violence whether it's physical or emotional but you have to accept that and some people don't they say well it's not, I'm, I'm i'm exaggerating it maybe i'm being too hard on the other side and like kind of making apologies or excuses for chronically abusive behavior by an abusive partner and beverly what i'd like to add to when there's physical abuse there, there's sort of like a start and an end to that isolated event. Right. And I have been in a situation where I was even choked to the point where I had to pretend that I lost consciousness to get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, you know, the event is over. And then comes that, you know, apology and that, that minimal um, you know, that, that coping mechanism of minimizing, oh, okay, you know, and it, that event goes away, okay? But when it's emotional, that doesn't so much go away. So if somebody tells you over and over again how stupid you are mm -hmm. or um, nobody would ever want you, you know, I love you, I want you, and there's a lot of mixed messages and confusion and everything else like that, but that doesn't go away. That just gets built upon and built upon and built upon and it affects your confidence, your self-esteem, your socialization. And then you're, you're really hiding things. So like, let's say for instance, you've got the abuser who is, you know, most likely to succeed and has so many friends and they're such a great person. And you're sitting there internally knowing the other side of that person and keeping it inside. And then you're reliving that trauma and you're not saying anything for multiple reasons, whether it's out of embarrassment, you know, or, 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 or getting to, you know, the fact that you are blaming yourself because there's something that you did because it's been pounding in you. And right. that's when I get to what I talked about before you know, um, where when people don't feel there's a, a way out and there's no relief and they don't have the skill building or the proper assistance to develop a plan to get their life back, this is when they're like, I've got to stop this 
and then they internalize it and many people take their own lives and that yeah. it doesn't get any more serious than that so how how does a victim know when they're emotionally ready <clears throat> Well, a lot of people don't know when they're emotionally ready. And, um, and this is why they wound up on um, my unit, a psychiatric unit. And um, depending on um, who's in that unit that is helping and assisting with the referrals and the skill building and the pairing. And I, I know that um, I had the benefit because I, I ran a lot of groups and a lot of people paired with me because in, in nursing, in psychiatric, you can share some of your personal experiences. And then when somebody has that, they develop a bond and a trust and they don't, they just don't feel like somebody's talking to them out of a scripted, you know, book or, or a training. And they feel like they're not alone. And feeling like you're not alone has such a big impact to people. And then when you can logically start to show them and shift them from that emotional side of the brain to the logical side of the brain and show them that they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and not getting a different response, that is you know, the definition of insanity. But when you take it out of their brain and show it on paper, what happens is they start to say, hey, you know what? I am doing the same thing over and over again, and I'm not a failure. And when you start to empower them, yeah. okay, and give them that skill building and, and you help them develop their plan and you support them in it, then you start to see the change. And then they start to feel hopeful. Then they get their confidence back. Then they get themselves back where they know who they are. And you know what? They come out even stronger. And a Absolutely. lot of people, and a lot of people go into the field. They go into the field like you have, like I have, you know, because we are the survivors and, and we have, you know, um, bettered ourselves. We have a greater understanding and we have more to contribute and then we become unstoppable and untouchable in that area. But also knowledge, knowledge is really important. So if someone uh, is involved in chronic self-denial and isolation and doesn't try to obtain more self-education in the area, then they're depriving themselves of the opportunity for more self-awareness. Um, so whether it's going to an advocacy group whether it's meeting one-on-one -on -one with a counselor or a therapist to talk about these things, um, whether it's going online and there's so much more information available online these days than, than, than there was in the pre-internet days, but you got to be careful because number one, a lot of information online is just, you know, anyone's just putting anything up there. And secondly, if you're living with an abusive person and you're going on your home computer and searching these things, it's very common for abusive individuals to also be controlling to be checking out things on your computer, right. even when you don't know that they're doing it. Sometimes they could check remotely by following just the touching of your keyboard. I've seen lots of people, abusers do this. So you, if you're gonna be searching anything online concerning domestic violence, it's probably advisable not to do it on your home computer or even remotely from your network that goes into your home, but somewhere else, like you know, at a, yeah. at a public library perhaps, or wherever wherever it may be, you know, um, but you don't wanna leave any digital footprints of that because if it's searched you could be putting yourself in more danger 
than, exactly. than when you originally started. But getting information and becoming self-educated, really in any field that you're interested in, but particularly if you think you might be uh, a, a, in a situation of domestic uh, violence and abuse, to know what is domestic violence, what can be, and, and also not only being emotionally ready, but ultimately, as we'll talk about later, perhaps more legally ready for some type of proceeding if you're going to participate in that in the future. And sometimes there's some unexpected removals of situations that become very helpful. So, for instance, I had one situation where um, uh, police responded and they told me I had three children, young children at the time, and I was told to, you know, remove myself and don't come back. And um, so that was my first step of uh, taking the uh, advice and, uh, and learning, you know, to, to skill build in what I can do. And being removed from that situation allowed me to take that breather and see things more clearly. Now, when I had gotten into a situation for the third time, I had such an emotional breakdown and the police responded to that. And they actually were the ones that would file the complaint because I was like, I can't believe I got myself in this situation again. Yes. And, um, and, but, but the thing of it is when I, when, when he was removed from that situation at that time, it gave me time to think, how did I get myself in this situation again? And how did I do that? But the reason why is there was something that was still inside of me that I didn't lose. I didn't lose trust in people. I believed what I was being told. I was, you know, I was believing that that was the status quo, that was reachable. And, and you know what? Um, that has never been lost in me. And I'm thankful for that. But when I could go now to the logical, hey, the only thing I got in this situation because I believed somebody who wasn't telling the truth. Instead of, I got myself in this situation because I'm stupid. I right. didn't recognize these things. You know, here I did it again. So it was very powerful, you know, that self-empowerment within myself to change my self-talk was the only thing I'm guilty is I believe somebody that didn't tell me the truth. Joni and Larry, thank you so much for being my guests today. Your contribution to this series on domestic violence can help so many, so many women. And I know that so many women and men are going to want to know more. So how can they find you and how can they get more information from you? Well, if anyone, you know, wants to speak with us further, we can certainly put, you know, our, our contact information in your show notes and things like that, if you'd like. And I would just say in a, in a general sense um, that if you have any issues concerning uh, domestic violence in the situation that you're in, um, it is important, I would suggest, uh, to consider, number one, you know, speaking with a domestic violence advocate. Almost every state, I believe every state has domestic violence advocacy um, programs out there. There's a lot of receiving federal funds just to get, you know, to hear a little bit of information from someone who has been knowledgeable in the field, experienced in the field. Sometimes, you know, people are really good at, at, at sizing up other people's situations, but not their own. Lots of people can say, can pick out if their friend is in a domestic abuse, abusive situation um, or a neighbor or a relative or a family member. They're able to pick it out in two seconds. But when it comes to themselves, it's a little more challenging sometimes. 
Um, so self-awareness becomes important. Obviously speaking, if it's an emergent situation and you're immediately under the risk of violence, you can obviously go to the police about that or go down to the court and file for a domestic violence complaint. You know, and then also, um, if you're not in that situation, but you, you think it could lead to that, getting as much information about resources that are available for survivors of domestic violence, because filing a complaint is just the start of the process. It's not the end of the process. There, If you get a restraining order, what's your life going to be after that restraining order? So planning ahead right. and being as, getting as much information as possible um, becomes very important on the path to self-empowerment. And Beverly, we do have a website. It's www.pointcdivorce.com. And um, it it has a powerful video on there if there's children involved. And there's also different segments to skill building on there. And there's it's absolutely free of charge. There's no charge to anybody. Right. Now, that, that website doesn't really deal with domestic violence. However, it deals with sort of marital breakups and divorces, things of that nature. But it might be relevant to some of your listeners as well. Absolutely. Well, all of Larry and Joni's information will be available in the show notes. This and all our episodes can be found at herempower.com on the podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also watch the video version on our YouTube channel, Her Empowered Divorce. Please share our story with your friends so we can reach out and help as many women as possible. And do not condone domestic violence by your silence. Join me for my next episode where we'll talk in October more about domestic violence. I have a free ebook that's called Why a Divorce Coach, and the link is also in the show notes. Remember, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and you can find more information and more domestic violence related podcasts at divorcecoalition.com. Until next time, Stay safe and stay empowered. Hello, Empowered Women. I'm Susan Guthrie, and with over 30 years as a leading family law attorney and mediator, I've stood by many as they navigated the intricate paths of divorce. That's why I created the Divorce and Beyond podcast. Drawing from my own expert insights and bringing in some of the country's top voices on divorce and its many facets, we aim not just to help you endure the storm, but to rise and shine brighter than ever in your beautiful beyond. If you are a regular on Her Empowered Divorce with Beverly Price, you already value empowerment during these challenging transitions. Together, our podcasts form a safety net, ensuring you don't just survive, but you thrive. So take my hand and let's journey together. Listen to Divorce and Beyond wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Remember the best is yet to come in your beautiful beyond. You can find the podcast on all major podcast outlets or on the website divorceandbeyond.com. Thank you for listening to the Her Empowered Divorce Podcast. Remember, divorce doesn't have to be a death sentence. With the right support and guidance, you can move through the process with knowledge, skills, and confidence. It can also be a time of growth and empowerment. As a divorce coach, I'm the first call you should make when you're contemplating divorce as the next steps will take and set the stage for your entire divorce and life after. I help you understand and navigate the process, come to terms with your emotions, and avoid, 
avoid costly mistakes. Find your true voice and create an empowered life post-divorce. If you're interested in learning more, schedule a free consultation at HerEmpoweredDivorce.com. Take care.